This is the first of two lessons and a mini-series on archaeology. Archaeology in the Old Testament will be followed by the second lesson, Archaeology in the New Testament. When I was a boy, I remember once receiving an award. I was at a, a statewide Latin convention, and my prize was a book on archaeology, on the excavations of Heinrich Schliemann at Troy and of Sir Arthur Evans on Crete. And it was something I knew nothing about. I think I was only 12 or 13 at the time. But it made me get excited. It made me start to wonder. I became a Christian when I was 18. And not only did I have a lot of questions, but the people I started to share my faith with also had questions. Fundamentally, they wanted to know, is the Bible really true? How do you know it's not just mythology, just a story that was made up? Well, every year in my faith, I've seen more and more that the foundations of the Bible are philosophically and psychologically, historically, geographically, in any other way you want, uh, reasonable. They're solid foundations. And archaeology is one of those areas within apologetics that can really help strengthen our faith, or at the very least, shed light on the biblical story. For probably 15 years, I have been following the work of the Biblical Archaeology Society. Sometimes I go to their conferences. But what's been even more fun for me is to lead tours to the Mediterranean world. This started in the late 90s. After my first visit to Jerusalem, I thought, I want to bring other people here. And planning tours around the Holy Land, from Galilee in the north all the way to the desert in the south, and of course Jerusalem, was very motivating for me. And as a result, I've been back many times, at least ten times. I've also led tours to Rome and Pompeii. Pompeii was the best preserved Roman city, well, ever, because of the accident. They weren't really planning on it, but when Mount Vesuvius exploded in 79 AD, that eruption led to the uh, beautiful preservation of a couple of towns that were in the shadow of the volcano. And so some years I lead tours to Rome and Pompeii. When I take people to Greece, we go to Corinth and, of course, Athens. For Turkey, we like to go to Ephesus, Pergamum, Laodicea, and so many other cities mentioned in the New Testament. For Egypt, we go to Giza and Cairo. Egypt, of course, is mentioned in the Bible more than 800 times. Well, these are the main places that I go and lead tours, Turkey, Israel, uh, Italy, Greece. And I hope that one day you'll join me on one of these. We won't have time in this short lesson to talk about all the top finds of the Old Testament, but we'll be able to talk about quite a few. One of those is the Gilgamesh epic, a discovery of an ancient creation and flood story that was found not only among the Babylonian records, but also among the Mesopotamian records of Samaria. And perhaps you've heard of the Gilgamesh epic or the epic of Atrahasis. These tablets were actually discovered a long time ago, but no one really knew what they were. 
And the serious work of translation didn't take place until just over a century ago when it was realized there were multiple parallels between the Old Testament stories in Genesis 1 to 11 and common stories of the day, this shed an entirely new light on the early Old Testament, the primeval narrative, that prehistoric uh, portion of the Old Testament. It showed, if nothing else, that the idea of a flood was common at the time. This was eye-opening to say the least. And it wasn't just because of the differences between the biblical flood story and the pagan story. There are many differences. The ark in the biblical story looks like a barge, more or less, with three stories. In the pagan stories, it looks like a Rubik's cube. It's uh, The dimensions are... Uh, really a perfect cube, which of course is somewhat ridiculous. But then we don't expect the Babylonians to have known much about the sea. They weren't known as the seafarers. No, but the difference is the theology. And this is what's most interesting. In the pagan stories, the humans who have been created, really just to serve the gods, there's no special personal relationship. The humans are getting noisy. They're disturbing the gods' sleep. And so the flood is sent to drown them out, to drown out those rats, because that's really all the pagan gods and goddesses think of the humans. Well, in the story of Noah, it's nothing like that. The flood is told in a very different way. The issue is not someone's sleep is being disturbed. Rather, the issue is moral Sin, and particularly the sin of violence, trigger the flood. There are not many gods, there's only one. And in reaching out to Noah, this was an act of grace. It was a way to preserve the human race. It wasn't that humans survived despite the efforts of the gods to eradicate them. Humans survived because God wanted them. And not simply so they could serve him, but so that they could be in relationship with him. And if you're like me, when you come across these ancient discoveries, your first question was probably a very modern question. Exactly what happened? And what proof is there? And what would a scientist say? I would just say right now that that's not normally the best way to approach the ancient evidence and the ancient stories, the ancient artifacts. The way to approach this is to ask, what does it mean? What is the significance? What is the biblical story telling us? Oh, there's so many top finds in the Old Testament. I mentioned these flood tablets. I think of the Amarna letters, which reflect a time when Palestine was was unstable, when uh, foreigners were moving in. Hapiru. I'm going to uh, just tell you a few of my favorites in this period. I hope that's okay with you. But this really is a big deal. Someone says, well, Douglas, you're just kind of worked up because this is your job. You used to be a preacher and now you're a teacher. And Well, no, I think it's a big deal even in biblical times. I think the ancient Hebrews knew the difference between mythology and history. In the Psalms, 
when it says that God is the one who destroyed the ancient dragon. I don't think they're saying that they believe in ancient dragons. I simply think they're saying that God is all-powerful. Whatever credit was given to the gods by the polytheists, the unbelievers, rightly goes to the true God, to Yahweh. And so in the Old Testament, I don't think they were confused about mythology. In fact, in a way, the Old Testament hijacks the mythology of the pagans and does something with it, which is very exciting. In the New Testament, there's an emphasis on historicity, that certain facts were so, that things really happen. Think of Peter's words shortly before his death. He's referring to the transfiguration, and he says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's Second Peter 1.16. John, in talking about Jesus Christ, insists that we've seen him, we've touched him, we proclaim what we have seen and heard. That's from the prologue of First John. Or even better known, from Paul's resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So whether these things truly happened or not is significant. Yes, but this is exactly where I believe many believers go wrong. They know that the biblical story is anchored in history, in real life, in the real world. And since it's a story that takes place in four dimensions, the three spatial dimensions, the one temporal dimension, the biblical story takes place then in four dimensions, they're constantly looking for proof. And sometimes people of faith can jump at what is not really proof. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke that sometimes the children of the light are a bit naive. And this is important for me to emphasize in any lesson on archaeology. For example, you'll see uh, many tours offered every year to take you to see the site of Noah's Ark or the remains of Noah's Ark. I must confess, to me, none of this is very convincing. And maybe because I've been around the world, I'm going to get a bit skeptical. I know a lot of people want to take your money. But I don't think there is any evidence of Noah's Ark. This was my reasoning. And this doesn't really matter how you take the story. Let's take it in the most straightforward and literal way uh, we, we possibly can. It's made of wood. It's large. It took a long time to build. The family comes out of this, this huge oversized boat. And what do they do with it? Turn it into a museum? Turn it into a, a national heritage site? Something that generations to come will be visiting? It's made of wood. If you go to the museums of the world, you'll see very few wooden objects, objects that have survived from ancient times. For example, in uh, the British Museum, in the Egyptian gallery, where I, I lead tours sometimes, I remember only one statue that survived that's wood. All the others, hundreds of them, are stone. 
wood rots. Well, even if it didn't rot, with all of that lumber, surely this would be great building material for construction. It would be great firewood. And so I've just given you three reasons right now why one would not expect a Noah's Ark to have survived at all. And so when people tell me, oh yeah, I saw a documentary, I know it's true, I'm wondering if they've maybe jumped to a conclusion, they've overreached, they've accepted minimal evidence just for the sake of faith. There was an amateur, he's now uh, departed, uh, amateur archaeologist, really more, more of an armchair archaeologist, named Ron Wyatt. And his work was never accepted or respected by actual archaeologists. But he made many incredible claims. For example, he claimed to have found the Ark of the Covenant. He claimed to have found, uh, well, Solomon's memorial pillars. He says that Solomon knew uh, the route of the Exodus, and Wyatt discovered the exact route of the Exodus. With underwater photography in the Red Sea, he found human bones and also ancient chariot wheels. His conclusion is, was that this is evidence of Pharaoh's drowned army. Is that possible? Well, one reason I don't think it's very likely is that the Old Testament says the crossing was in Yom Suf, the Sea of Reeds which is, in a sense, the northern extension of the Red Sea. The whole area in ancient times was called the Red Sea, even the Sea of Reeds, which is much more shallow. And that's where the crossing was, according to Exodus. So I think he's looking in the wrong place. Second, there are many human bones and parts of vehicles, like chariots, in all the seas of the world. In fact, it would be very surprising if nothing had sunk and nothing had survived uh, especially when it when it comes to uh, chariots and human bones, you'll find these everywhere. His discovery is no more evidence of Pharaoh's ground army than a similar discovery uh, in the Caribbean would be evidence that Pharaoh's army was there. At the very most, the discovery is suggested, and certainly it doesn't prove. There's a famous atheist. I think he, he was too skeptic. Um, he was the astronomer Carl, Carl Sagan. And in Sagan's books, he talks about having our baloney detector turned on. A baloney detector. Sometimes things just don't seem right. Or they're too good to be true. And when it seems that way, it will virtually always be the case. And so when I see a fellow like Wyatt, who's found the evidence of Pharaoh's army, or he's found the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and many other things. Just about anything worth finding, he claimed to have found. My baloney detector goes off. Well, my reaction is more than just one of skepticism. It actually becomes one of irritation and sadness. Let me tell you why. Many well-meaning Christian men and women, unaware of how archaeology works, Don't check their sources. Through the internet, they'll receive uh, pictures and claims. Ron Wyatt is one of the most uh, popular, by the way. And it comes into their head 
This will help my friends come to faith. Sometimes it's Christian parents. They'll think, ah, this will help my teenage Johnny or Susie to stop struggling. And the Wyatt material has been emailed to me several times through the years, usually with an appendage saying, kind of an appendix at the end saying, send this on to as many people as you can. Well, I think the devil must be laughing because the evidence is non-existent. It's something that discredits the faith, not only in the eyes of real archaeologists or people who've even done a minimum uh, level of study of archaeology, but it also discredits us in the eyes of our children who one day will be exposed to the actual evidence. And when that happens, they'll realize their parents were wrong. I think we've got to be so careful about what we pass on because there's flimsy evidence and then there are even just hoaxes. I lived for a long time in England. Speaking of Old Testament archaeology, I couldn't believe uh, this article that appeared in a very cheap tabloid in the UK. This was the title, Adam and Eve's Tomb Found in Israel. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? I mean, the idea that, uh, again, no matter how you interpret the story, that their tomb had been found? I mean, how would they know it was the tomb of Adam and Eve? And why would it be in Israel? If you go by the Old Testament, they, they didn't live anywhere near Israel. A few years ago, a friend of mine in Brazil forwarded me an email. I'm still, I'm still on this hoax kick because I, I think we need to talk about this. And it's a picture of a skeleton of a giant. This skull of the giant is easily uh, larger or taller than one of the archaeologists who's unearthing it. And there are a couple of uh, humans in this picture. It's obviously trick photography. But it was published in Bangladesh. According to Muslim tradition, there were giants on the earth. And so this was in a Bangladeshi paper. The humans look just tiny next to this skeleton. It's amazing what you can do with uh, Photoshop, isn't it? And this has been picked up in Brazil. And my friend saw this in the paper in Brazil. And he thought, could it be? Because some Bible versions talk about giants. And he sent it to me wisely with a question. Do you think it's legit, Douglas? Should I send this to other people? And I said, I'm 99% certain this is a hoax. It's fake. And there are so many things like that. So my friends, at the beginning, I I just want you to be very careful what you accept. And while not desiring to push you into total skepticism, I'd rather you be a bit skeptical instead of just assuming everything. Here's another one. NASA discovers the missing day. The legend has been around for longer than NASA itself, but it turned into a NASA event sometime in the 1960s. The story goes that some scientists were doing orbital mechanics calculations to determine the positions of planets for use in figuring out the trajectories for future missions, space missions. 
and they realized that they were off by a day. And then one of them, who was familiar with the Bible, just happened to have a Bible on his desk, and he remembered the passage from Joshua 10, and everyone was now informed. And I've heard this shared by preachers as evidence that the Bible is accurate, that there is a missing day in Joshua. Now again, how you interpret Joshua 10, this is open to some mm, some difference of opinion. It's, it's a combination of poetry and then prose. There's certainly more than one way to look at it. But do you really believe that if the Lord had elongated time, he had dilated time so that there was an extra day for Joshua, that this would show up in NASA's records uh, when it comes to outer space, really there would be no connection. How would, how would that even register? If you think about the claim, it doesn't even make sense. And besides, it's a hoax. That NASA discovery never happened. I bet if you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years, you've heard about this amazing discovery yourself. But it's not real. It's simply not real. The truth is, there's no direct archaeological evidence for a lot of things that we would like to have in the Old Testament. There's no direct evidence for the Exodus. Well, there's evidence that there were uh, foreign slaves in Egypt. There were foreigners. There were Semites. There's certainly evidence that uh, the Jews had a familiarity with Egypt. I mean, who would make up the story that our our forefathers were slaves? If you're just inventing your pedigree, you would make up something a little bit more, mm, a little bit more positive, something that you would take more pride in than the story that you know we're we're basically runaway slaves. There are, there are a lot of reasons to believe the Exodus is true, but it's not from archaeology. I read a book a couple of years ago. It was about the evidence uh, for the uh, Israelites being in the wilderness of Sinai. Well, yes, there are some artifacts in the Sinai, but these are from Bedouins. They're not from ancient Israelites. And when I was reading the book, you know, I was hoping, I was hoping it was true. I thought, oh, this would be really cool. But as I read it, the baloney detector is going off. I'm thinking, this is a stretch. This isn't right. There's no direct archaeological evidence for Noah's Ark or the Ark of the Covenant or the Nephilim or the Ten Commandments, even though Ron Wyatt says he found a version too. There's no evidence of humans coexisting with dinosaurs. And if I could fast forward to the New Testament times, think of all the Catholic relics. There's no evidence. There's no uh, evidence of, of the true Holy Cross. Peter's nets, Jesus' sandals, Joseph's saw, Mary's footprints, John's dentures, Bartholomew's kidney stones, or whatever else someone might claim. In fact, overall, there's very little evidence of things that we would like. Probably my favorite book on archaeology is Randall Price's The Stones Cry Out. And he he has a very clear way of putting things. Says Price, through the Israeli Antiquities Authority database alone, armchair archaeologists now have access to over 100,000 
archaeological relics discovered in the state of Israel since 1948. Now, that's amazing to me. You can learn, if you had the time and the inclination, <laughs> uh, to, you could learn about more than 100,000 archaeological relics. I mean, every time I go to the Holy Land, I pick up something. I don't mean I take it illegally out of the country. They'll get you for that. But I mean, there's a there's an antiquity shop in Bethlehem I like to go to. And often I'll buy an ancient coin. Last time I was there, because I know the family, they gave me a gift. They gave me a, a coin, a silver coin from the time of Alexander the Great. We drop coins down sofas and under the seats in, your, in our cars. And we drop them everywhere on the sidewalk. This has always been the case. People lose coins. Well, think of the parable in Luke 15, the woman who loses one of her ten coins and, and throws a party when she finds it. People have been losing coins for thousands of years, and there are millions of coins that are still in the dirt in Israel or Greece, Italy, wherever you would want to look. But let's talk about something bigger than coins. Think about actual archaeological sites. And this is what Price says, and I think this is well put. Only a fraction of what is made, think of ancient cultures, only a fraction is of what's made or written ever survives. Only a fraction of the available archaeological sites have been surveyed. And, you know, it just takes time to survey. Uh, for example, a few years ago, I was in Laodicea. You'll be familiar with that place from Colossians 4 and Revelation 3. They were really only just starting to excavate. The site has been known for quite a while, and I'm looking forward to going back next year to Laodicea and seeing how much progress they made. But these things take time and money. So only a fraction of what is made or written survives. Only a fraction of the available archaeological sites have been surveyed. Only a fraction of the surveyed sites have been excavated. Only a fraction of an excavation site is actually examined. If you've ever seen how they do it, uh, with trenches and shafts, and now with laptop computers, which is essential for any archaeologist. So things are located in three space. But only a fraction of the site is really examined. And only a fraction of what is examined is eventually reported and published. Last year, I was at Megiddo, or better known as Armageddon, and I was talking with the head archaeologist there. His name is Israel Finkelstein. He's a notorious skeptic and minimalist. That is, he believes there's almost nothing true in the Old Testament. But he is an archaeologist and a, a pretty good one. And I said, so what's new? What are you finding here at Megiddo? He's been digging at Armageddon or Megiddo for many years. And he said, well, look up there. You see where the, the uh, tarps are. The students um, are uncovering Housing. These are houses. Of course, they're very old. These are thousands of years old. While much of Megiddo has been excavated, and you can go there and walk if you want to tell your friends, hey, I went around Armageddon. You can do that. You can walk down to the water source. You can go in the tunnels. You can go in the buildings that have been excavated. But a lot of it still hasn't been excavated. And this is in one of the most famous sites of Israel. So I know that's true. This is work. Only a fraction of what is examined is eventually reported and published. And I don't know if those uh, those houses that Finkelstein's group uh, were unearthing 
will ever appear in anything more than a very technical journal, if even there. In other words, there's an awful lot more than you would realize. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Just the tip of the iceberg. So, where does that leave us? Well, it reminds us we need to be careful about our assumptions. We need to not jump at the evidence too quickly. Yet, I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression. Wow, Douglas sounds as skeptical as Finkelstein. No, I'm not. I don't want to be skeptical like that. I want to live as a man of faith. But I don't want to, I think, somewhat arrogantly, just ignore what experts have found, whether it's archaeologists or scientists, historians or theologians. I don't want to just ignore them think I know better, and just buy into anything, into any internet hoax or so-called discoveries of the Ron Wyatts of the world. So there's a balance point somewhere between extreme skepticism and extreme gullibility. And we need to uh, watch ourselves. So what do we know for sure from the Old Testament? Well, one of the first characters we read about in the Bible is Abraham. And we read of an interesting battle. He has several hundred forces, and he's rescuing his relative, Lot, and his family, and others who've been taken captive. And it says in Genesis that he went as far as the gate at Laish. Laish was later renamed Dan when the Danites conquered it. The Canaanite gate, and Abraham lives around 2000 BC, that Canaanite gate is still there. Uh, you, when you go to Dan, tell Dan, you can see it. Now, does that prove Abraham was there? No, but it proves that there was a settlement there in the time of Abraham. And what's even perhaps more interesting, you can see it. And there's a connection between the kind of sight that is optical and the kind of sight that is theological, that's faith-based. Let me explain. When I see the gate at Laish, I have a memory now. I can imagine what it would look like for people to walk through that gate. If Abraham walked through that gate, I can imagine it. Just like when you see the beautiful Ishtar gate, the gate in Babylon through which Daniel and his friends who were deported, through which they walked, that helps that to come to life. The visual becomes a powerful support for faith. If I can see it with my eyes, then it's easier for me to see it happening. And I'm not saying seeing is believing. I'm certainly not trying to contradict 2 Corinthians 5.7. We live by faith, not by sight. I'm simply making this point. The more we look at an issue, a place, um, uh, an artifact, the more it is uh, the, more, the less abstract it is in our minds, the more concrete and the easier it is to locate it in the ancient world through eyes of faith. So there's, a, there's that connection between the optical visual and the faith visual. I hope that makes sense to you. Another place that is, I think is very interesting is Hatzor. Most English Bibles call it Hazor, but it's actually Hatzor. This was the capital of the Northern Canaanite Alliance. In the book of Joshua, we see two 
uh, massive military campaigns, a southern campaign that begins with Jericho, but there's a northern campaign. And Hatzor, which is uh, in the north, the, the kind of the greener, I guess you'd say the greener part of the country, was the capital of the Canaanites in, in that part of the Holy Land. And it's an amazing city because there are ruins from the Canaanite time, from the Israelite time, uh, from the time of Solomon, uh, because he kept horses there. Uh, he, he built the gates of Hatzor and Gezer and so forth uh, to be huge. One, probably the most interesting, interesting thing to me about Hatzor is the evidence of burning. The conquest, that is when the people of Israel went into Canaan and took over the land, which was previously occupied by many, many different peoples, as we know. Think of the Jebusites and the Gergesites and so forth. Hatzor was a town that was burned down, burned to the ground. I can remember some of my Old Testament courses, and I've only really studied it at very liberal universities. They, they certainly, most of my professors didn't have very much faith. But they said that this blitzkrieg picture you get from Joshua, uh, scorched earth, they destroyed everything, is false. There's really no archaeological evidence except for a few cities. Well, the truth is, when you read Joshua closely, you see that Jericho was totally destroyed, and Ai, the next major battle in the south, and Hatzor. But apart from those three cities, I don't remember any other Canaanite cities that were said to have been burnt to the ground. The way I imagine it happening is, the Israelite armies were coming, many people were fleeing, uh, there was some fighting um, the Canaanites were killed or enslaved, but the towns were not destroyed except in just a few cases. In other words, the, the fact that only uh, a few were burnt to the ground fits perfectly with the book of Joshua. Does that help you? I hope it does. I'm still staying in the north right now, in Dan, and this is way in the north is where you, you can, you see Caesarea Philippi, um, as you go towards Mount Hermon in Syria and Lebanon, the town of Dan, the area of Dan, is actually very beautiful. And an amazing discovery was made in the early 90s. It has to do with David. King David is mentioned more than a thousand times in the Bible. An inscription was discovered under the uh, the teamwork led by Avram Biran. When I met Biran, he was in his early 90s. He's passed on since. I mean, this discovery was in the early 90s, but when I met him at an archaeological conference, he was already in his 90s. Kindly man. But one of his students discovered an inscription sticking out of the ground, and it mentions David. Well, why is that significant? Because minimalists, I mentioned before Finkelstein, but, but archaeologists who think that basically the whole biblical history was just invented, it's just, it's fictive. Minimalists would say, well, no, there was no David. The glory days of David and Solomon were just made up. But this inscription comes not from Israel. It comes from Aram. Aram, or Syria, were the perennial enemies of Israel. Now the the inscription is partial. 
And yet it clearly mentions the house of David. It's from about a century and a half after David. And it's hostile testimony. And that's not to say that if if ever um, a, a reference to David was found uh, by Israelites, that that would be uh, rejected. No, that'd be fine. That'd be great. But when it comes from an outsider, when it comes from an enemy, it's even better. And this really, I think, pulled the um, evidential carpet right out from underneath, <laughs> pulled the rug right out from underneath the feet of the minimalists. Because he's there. He's discovered. Now, one of the archaeological pieces you may have uh, have heard of, because it's, it's it's even better known than the uh, the David inscription, was the discovery of the Hittite Empire. Hittites are mentioned uh, dozens of times in the Old Testament. The most famous Hittite was probably Uriah the Hittite, and their empire was all at the east, the end, uh, the eastern end of Mediterranean, but especially in what is modern Turkey. It was common in the 19th century for skeptics to say, here's one more piece of biblical mythology. There's no evidence of the Hittites. We haven't found it, so it's not real. Uh, they just made it up. Until, and this is just over a century ago, tablets were discovered. They were unearthed in the capital, what turned out to be the capital of the Hittite Empire, in Bugazkia. I was a member of the Archaeological Institute of the University of London when I lived in London, and I once attended a very dry lecture on the Hittites. Now, why did I go? Well, I thought I know nothing about them. They're in the Bible. I should probably learn. It was dry, and I bought a book on the Hittites, and that was even drier, but it was worth it for this. It became very clear to me that this is a real empire Oh, you see, the tablets that were discovered, at first it was just tens and hundreds, but eventually thousands and tens of thousands. And so for the empire that never was, you can now receive a master's degree in Hittite language study, if you want to. They were offering it at the University of Pennsylvania. I used to be campus minister there. If you want to go to Chicago... They are well known for the PhD in Hittite studies, which they've conferred on many of their students. So this powerful empire that was current around 1600 till 700 BC was real. Now, of course, the fact they're mentioned in the Bible, and then the skeptics make fun of the Bible, and then there's proof that Hittites are, uh, you know, really existed. That doesn't prove the Bible is true in all that it teaches. It shows that the Bible was on track and was uh, doubted uh, unfairly. You know, sometimes we we may be tempted to make more of the evidence that is warranted. Uh, for example, the discovery of the tablets of the Hittite Empire uh, are not a proof that David arranged the murder of Uriah the Hittite. At best, it just gives us some kind of background, but it does show us a couple of important things that we should not doubt the Bible simply because there's not evidence yet. The familiar adage is, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Just because the evidence is missing or no one can find it right now, absence of evidence, doesn't mean there is no evidence. That's not evidence of absence of evidence. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence.
very important point to learn um, in, uh, in, uh, in, in archaeology. Well, many other discoveries have, uh, have also illustrated uh, the faith. One of my favorite rooms in the British Museum where I kind of locked myself up for a month back in 1986. I thought, I want to learn everything here about the Bible, the Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian manuscript, everything there. One of the things that excited me was the Lachish room. Lachish was a city that the Assyrians destroyed, and after they finished off Lachish, this is 701 B.C., they came after Jerusalem. King Hezekiah turned to the Lord in faith, and disaster was averted. Well, that Lachish room has some incredible reliefs that shows us why at this time the Assyrians were what later, later scholars call the Nazis of the Old Testament. You see pictures of them skinning, flaying their enemies alive, impaling them on stakes, enslaving them. But one of the cases caught my eye because it has sling stones. This is a case in the corner of the room with sling stones. I always thought of sling stones, you know, I think of David and Goliath, uh, you know, something the size of a small marble, a little pebble. When you look at these sling stones, uh, some of them are about the size of a tennis ball. And the slings are not just something a child would use. These are, 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 are things that would be whirled, uh, the, the fellow would, would, the soldier would whirl it around, and when he released it, that ball would be going out at hundreds of miles an hour. And sometimes uh, they would be able to uh, fire these stones uh, 300, even 400 meters. Powerful. And so I'm in the Lachish room, but for me, that's helping me to have a better understanding of 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, just because it helped me to visualize what sling stones were like. Ah, but back to Lachish. We know that what Hezekiah did was pray. And according to Second Kings and Second Chronicles, the Lord turned away uh, the siege, and it says the angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in the camp that night. What a story. That's incredible. Well, did you know there are two other ancient discoveries that tie into this? One of them is has to do with the uh, Greek historian Thucydides. And he talks about how mice, maybe they're rats, gnawed through the uh, the gnawable <laughs> weapons of the enemy army. Now hang on to that for a second. Then there's the Assyrian story. In the Assyrian Chronicles, they never say that we turned away in shame. Rather, they just say, well... I, you know, Sennacherib, uh, you know, I, I didn't let Hezekiah escape. Wait a minute. The point was to take him captive. It was to make true the words of the field marshal, the Rab Shekhar. But listen to what the, uh, the Assyrians say on the so-called Taylor prism. As for Hezekiah, the Judean who did not submit to my yoke, I surrounded and conquered 46 of his strong-willed, strong-walled towns and innumerable small settlements around them by means of earth ramps and siege engines and attacked by infantrymen. He himself I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. Okay, it's true. The Assyrians did destroy many towns in Judea, not to mention the whole north. But his admission, his tacit admission is that he failed. 
All he says is that I shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. He was actually ineffective. He was unable to break through. Now let's go back to the Egyptian, I mean to the um, Greek, and I said Thucydides, I should have said Herodotus. Herodotus said that the Egyptian gods sent field mice to eat the Assyrian bowstrings, quivers, and shield handles. So this was in a battle involving Egypt. It talks about the presence of rodents in the Assyrian camp. And then, of course, you have Second Kings. It's also in the book of Isaiah. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. How can you put these together? They seem irreconcilable. How about this? Plague is usually carried on the backs of rodents. I mean, the, the fleas will be in the rats. The plague that destroyed this huge number of Assyrian soldiers, what if it came through rodents? That would be pretty embarrassing. We're not surprised that the Assyrians don't mention the angel and their what is really their defeat because of propaganda and ancient and modern governments. You normally don't admit defeat, especially in ancient times. But what if... Herodotus, the Greek historian, is is helping us see what happened by the thought that rodents went into the enemy camp. So if you put together these, these different passages, we have a pretty interesting thought. The thought that, quite simply, the, uh, that what we know was uh, inaugurated by an angel of God and was ignored in the Assyrian Chronicles may have actually been made effective by rats, and that would explain uh, a number of things. So sometimes archaeology brings in other disciplines. It's not just archaeology. Let's talk about a few more of the Old Testament finds before we summarize. Back in 1880, Hezekiah's tunnel was discovered. I was just talking about the Assyrians coming to Jerusalem, and they failed. In 701 B.C., Hezekiah prays. In fact, he even takes the letter of the Assyrians meant to intimidate them, and he takes it to the temple and spreads it out, and he prays, and and God is, is gracious. But before the siege began, Hezekiah's men diverted the water source. You may, uh, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know the Gihon Spring. They wanted to make sure that the enemy didn't block it up or poison it or, you know, basically take away the water because otherwise the Israelites would be in big trouble. And so they diverted the water by making a tunnel. And the tunnel was quite long, uh, something like 1,200 cubits, around a third of a mile. But it was only discovered in 1880. Now, it's only explicitly mentioned in Second Kings 2020. So here's another thing. Um, it's in the Old Testament. It's not actually discovered until more than two and a half millennia later. I think that's fascinating. And even more fascinating is to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. When it's not the wet season, you can do it without drowning. It's quite narrow. It's pitch black. uh, And you'll get wet, at least the bottom part of you will, in the dry season. But you walk through and you you can imagine the two teams of laborers working with their pickaxes, calling to each other. uh, When they can finally hear each other's voice in the rock, they join up and the, the water is diverted and... Israel, Jerusalem is saved. Hezekiah's tunnel is a piece of archaeology that you can participate in by walking through. Isn't that amazing? The black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. Oh, I like this one. 
It's in the British Museum. And Shalmaneser was an Assyrian king. And did you know that there are basically no pictures of Israelite kings that have survived? And I think it's because the Israelites were very hesitant to make images of humans. But this is not um, an Israelite pillar. This stele or obelisk is Assyrian. And in it, we see Jehu, son of Nimshi, bowing down, doing obeisance to the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser III. Now, that is interesting. Jehu is the one who went a little bit over the top, uh, going after Ahab and uh, you know Jezebel and idolatry. Second Kings 9 and 10, come with me, see my zeal for the Lord. But we don't read about this in the Bible, that he put his trust in alliance with the Assyrians. That's exactly uh, the reason the Assyrians were able to come in the following century and cause so much trouble. So the Assyrians are helping us out here. Oh, there's so many other great discoveries. I mentioned the Ishtar Gate, which uh, you can see it. This was the gate into uh, Babylon or the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Beautiful uh, 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 ceramic with blues and gold and and uh, heavenly beings. A huge gate. I felt so small. I'm six foot four. But when I walked through that gate, I felt tiny because it is just so tall, so enormous. And this is the gate through which all the Judean captives, like Daniel, walked when they were deported. And you can see that gate if you go to Berlin. Because a lot of the cool stuff is in Germany, uh, France, and England. And other museums in Turkey, um, Israel, uh, Egypt. But definitely the Germans, the French, and the English got a lot of cool stuff. That gate actually has an inscription mentioning King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, that is, who was a real person for sure. There was a uh, Jewish community in Egypt on the island of Elephantine, which is an island in the Nile. And there are inscriptions mentioning Hanani, that's the brother of Nehemiah, Yohanan, the high priest, Nehemiah 12, and Sanballat. And when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you recognize these guys as being the enemies of the Jews. There's a 6th century Aramaic inscription, 6th century BC, that refers to Balaam. Think of Numbers 22 to 24. Uh, Menachem, uh, the king Menachem. Uh, there are seals uh, mentioning Gemariah and Ishmael and Baruch. In fact, part of his fingerprint was discovered a few years ago. Baruch, the secretary of Jeremiah. It's his personal seal. The fingerprint got on there when it was still wet. Um, it's in Hebrew, in fact, the Hebrew of the time. Baruch's fingerprint. I think of the Cyrus cylinder. Um, this was... Uh, the uh, a document, well, the cylinder is rolled in clay and it makes multiple documents, decreeing the return of the Jews from exile. Second Chronicles 36, Ezra 1. The Persians are reversing the, the deportation policy of the Babylonians and Assyrians, and they're returning the Jews, if they're willing to go, to their land. And they'll even help support their religion, give them money so they can rebuild their temple and so forth. The Cyrus Cylinder confirms this. And so you would think you'd be in Iran, but I've seen it in London. London's a great place to go. Oh, my friends, there's so many other things. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, I would love to talk about that. Maybe another time. Uh, it's kind of outside archaeology, but it's certainly of great interest. The Ebla tablets, which illuminate the background of uh, Genesis you know, the early chapters of Genesis and um, the Mari tablets, 
which tell us so much about patriarchal customs later in Genesis, as do the Nusi tablets. Rosh Amra, I mentioned the Armarna letters. Oh, there are so many other things I would love to tell you about. Plenty. Despite my initial impression I probably left you with of skepticism, there are actually a lot of things from the Old Testament that show us that the Bible is on target. And one of those is actually quite embarrassing, and that's the presence of idols. Little, especially uh, fertility figures, uh, little figurines found in every place, every place in Egypt, I mean in Egypt, in Israel, where archaeologists have dug. They found idols, extensive evidence of idols, and nowhere more so than in Jerusalem. So many idols. And so we see that the prophets who called the people back to the law were exactly on target. The idols were everywhere. Israel continually slipped into idolatry. Okay, what does all this mean? We're going to end the lesson here this time. I want to emphasize this. Archaeology illuminates and confirms the Bible. But to be honest, usually it's just illumination. It shows us the background more than proving things one way or the other. After all, a city like Hatzor that's been burnt to the ground doesn't prove the Jews did it, even if it was at the right time period. It suggests it. We find illumination more than confirmation. Let me put it this way. Archaeological discoveries bring the Bible to life. They help us to envision true events that took place in ancient times and places. And prejudice against the biblical record has often been shown to be unjustified. And you may have noticed a large number of discoveries have only been made in the last hundred years or so, which means there's probably much more yet to be found. Who knows? what the archaeologist spade will turn up in the future, perhaps in the very near future. In the next lesson, we're going to talk about New Testament archaeology and the ancient manuscripts.